This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode 447 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, February 10th, 2017. And this week, the Z-Man and I are going to talk a little bit about uh, what we call research to practice, a topic we've been talking about for a couple of years now, and uh, we plan to continue pushing that concept as time goes on. We also do a little research to practice at our annual Healthy Building Summit in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania. That'll be coming up November 2nd through the 4th this year. But before we get started, we've got to thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Congratulations to Victor Cafaro. Chesterfield, Virginia, for the first correct answer to last week's IQ Radio trivia question. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, February 10th, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. Name the term for a supposition or proposed explanation made on the basis of limited evidence as a starting point for further investigation. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. And today we're the guests. Cliff's uh, looking forward to chatting a little bit about the uh, topic of research to practice. In the show announcement, I also included that we'll talk a little on how remediation engineering controls affect particulate and other IAQ parameters. That's a presentation I did at the IAQA conference a couple weeks back. And uh, it's also been the topic of our research at our annual Healthy Building Summit. But before we do, let's, let's kind of set the stage a little bit, Cliff. I, I know you've done, done a little research on uh, what research is, essentially, and then uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, our perspective on it, and then we'll get into some detail on that particular study. Okay. So what, what did well, you... Well, research... Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious, what, you know, what's your first thoughts on, you know, what is research to you, I guess? Well, I think if, if you look at the definition of it, you know, research is a noun. It's the systematic investigation into and study of materials and sources in order to establish facts and reach new conclusions. And some more synonymous with research, you know, or investigation experimentation, testing, analysis, fact-finding, field work, and I think that's really where the practice to research comes in, you know, examination and scrutiny. When it's used as a verb, it means to investigate systematically, and other verbs uh, that are synonymous with it are investigate, study, inquire, look into, probe, explore, analyze, examine, scrutinize, uh, and review. And I, I think that, you know, some of the challenges that we have are, you know, number one, you know, who did the research? And 
is the research really done by the smartest guy in the room or the most knowledgeable person on that subject? And, you know, the fact that someone may have initials after their name or someone may have a designation or someone may have a certification, I'm not sure that that means that they are the most qualified person uh, about that particular subject. What do you think, Joe? Well, you know, I, I was actually going to ask you, who is the most qualified person then? In, in your mind, you know, um, is it the most experienced person, the most, uh, the person with the most academic uh, background on that subject? I mean, I guess it depends on the type of research you're looking at as well. Well, you know, I think that there's, you know, you know, I think what happens is the research that may be done in a laboratory, may be done on a university level, can be a little bit different than the practical research, you know, that, that's, that's done in the field. You know, in our industry, uh, we designate people as authorities. We designate people as experts. And I guess the question is, uh, are the people that we designate as being authorities, are they really authorities on the subject matter? Uh, do they really have uh, you know, the experience? I think from the restoration side, uh, I would lean towards practical field experience. Uh, you know, what happens is when we're out in the field, every job is different. There are a lot of variables. You know, we see different circumstances. We see different uh, situations, and when we apply a procedure, we apply a technique uh, to a given uh, you know situation. We have the opportunity to kind of see the good, you know, the bad, and the ugly. And I, I think one of the primary questions that we we really need to think about, Joe, is why do we do what we do? And you know, in our generation, you know, we're, we're close, uh, is similar in age. I'm, I'm a little older, but. You know, I think we tended to do what our forefathers did, what the people that came before us did. You know, this is the way that it was always done. And I think that, you know, when things are handed down, uh, I don't know that too many mistakes are really handed down from generation to generation. And, you know, particularly, you know, we talk about John, the fact that he lives on a farm, and, you know, he's a farmer. You know, when it came to farming, if they made a mistake, I think they realized it because the food didn't grow or, you know, the cow uh, you know, didn't give birth to the calf or, or whatever. I think these things are pretty de demonstrable about what works and what doesn't work. And I think there's really a huge generation gap. You know, when we talk about a millennial like John, I think what happens is a lot of times with millennials, it's new, therefore it's the best. And I think a lot of times... Um, you, you know, they just don't even look at old things that were proven. It's just the newest technology. Uh, it just came out. Someone says it's new. Therefore, I think younger people have a tendency to think what's new is best. What do you think? Well, I, I you know, I see where you're coming from, but I also, I think there's times when people repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. It's passed on through the generations. You know, this is how we always built. A new home or this is how we always built a uh, a garage or whatever the case may be and now with the you know the newer uh, materials and, and the newer products that are out there that doesn't always work and um, also with the fact that now we have both you know heating and air conditioning so what worked in the past may not work today and I think that's where we need some of these people that do a more science-based type of research and I again I'm not sure exactly what research is at this point you know does it have to be someone with a scientific background to do this or or does it count that someone in the field goes out and does a same project three or four different ways and finds out that you know one way works better than another so i i think it's a difficult question actually what what is research now one of the questions i've had though is if someone is a practitioner and they don't really have the scientific background to do proper research so i see some of that now some of these people were considered scientists too but um i don't know why in a lot of cases so for instance you'll see people do research with no controls and, and if you don't have controls i wonder how applicable or how how um how good that research really is 
you know, I just want to go back to one of the things that you said, you know, about building. And I think that I tend to disagree a little bit. You know, back, you know when we look at things historically, if, if you ever go to Europe, you know, you can walk around and you can see buildings that are hundreds of years old. You know, you can go to the Middle East, you can see structures that may be thousands of years old. And I think, uh, you know, they built things and they tended to last. And I think where we got screwed up building-wise and building science-wise was really because of the energy crisis. And, I, and I, you know, when you think back, it, it just seems that we didn't used to have the, the, the problems that we have now, and a lot of this came, you know, we brought a lot of this on ourselves by, you know, tightening buildings and, and not realizing that when we tighten buildings, we're going to have consequences, uh, you know, to each action. And I, I think that's, that's one of the challenges. It is, but also it, it goes back, before that to when we started putting air conditioning in buildings and people started moving south and, and living in the south and, and doing things in the south that hadn't been done there in the past and then wondering why, you know, it didn't work as well in an air-conditioned building as it did in another building. Or when we started adding insulation back in the early, I, I think it was like the 30s or the 40s, um, they started adding insulation and then the paint didn't stay as well on the exterior building. So... Uh, it's a combination of those things, I think. You know, you, you have changes in where people live, how they live, how much time they spend in their buildings. The air conditioning changed a lot of things. And then the energy crisis, if I do agree with you, that compounded things tremendously and pretty much led to the industry that we talk about every week, the indoor air quality industry. Well, I think, you know, maybe we should talk real, you know, in, in terms of talking about a study, you know, if, and I, and I do some research myself and, uh, you know, have, have, I've always done so. And, um, you know, it's, it's for my own benefit. Sometimes it's for the benefit of the company. Sometimes it's for the benefit of the industry. And, you know, my feeling is that if I design a study to determine whether or not something works, I call that science. And if I design a study to determine what works, you know, I, I call that science. Uh, calling the only circumstances and parameters in which a product works, a study, to me, isn't science and is marketing. And I think we see a lot of this stuff, and I think more recently within the past couple of years. You know, in, in magazines, and uh, you know, we we see a lot of that. You know, uh, something that's designed in very limited circumstances, very limited parameters, and they call this product science. So you don't have the benefit of generations uh, of people that have seen it. You don't have the benefit of hundreds or thousands of people uh, that have seen similar circumstances or differing circumstances. Um, they just say that this, this works, you know, this kills mold, this removes odor, this solves this problem, this prevents that problem, you know, this kills this, this prevents that, uh, you know, there's a lot of it and, and maybe more than I ever remember. I'm wondering if you, you know, you have a, a real lengthy background in, developing products for the restoration industry some of them disinfectants and uh sanitizers and and so on and what are your thoughts on the research you had to do and i would call it research and it was it was done based on parameters established by epa as i understand it for determining if these products work would you call that research well um I do. You know, I think what happens is the EPA has required testing, and uh, the testing falls into a couple of different categories. One category is efficacy. Uh, you know, does the product work? Uh, does it kill this organism? Does it kill that organism? And what they need to do for that type of testing is they need to do it in a laboratory. They need to have controlled conditions. Uh, the, the organisms, uh, you know, are sourced from... You know, the same bank, 
so that people are using the same organisms and they have you know, uh, very specific controls. And, you know, one of the, the things that, um, you know, going back to the disinfectant side of the business uh, a little bit early on was that the primary uh, fungi that was tested against was athlete's foot fungi. And the reason for that was that athlete, athlete's foot fungi, trichophyton, was considered a health risk. Because you know, people got it, it would itch. Uh, what some people may not know is jaw crash and athlete's foot are the same, uh, you know, pretty much the same organism. It depends kind of, uh, you know, uh, where, you know where you have the <laughs> proliferation. And sometimes you can really, uh, you know, have it in both places. Another type of testing that's done is toxicology testing, and that's where they do oral dermal inhalation toxicity, and those tend to be animal uh, studies in which uh, animals end up being sacrificed because they end up um, determining worst-case uh, scenarios, uh, you know, on the product, LB50s and, you know, uh, lethal dose 50% and so on and so forth based on by the weight of the animal. You know, the big challenge with this, and, and I think it's okay, you know, it's really a standard by which you can compare one product uh, against another. You know, the big challenge with it is that there's new technology coming out all the time, you know, on the antimicrobial side. Uh, stuff that's more efficacious, stuff that's safer. And what happens is the hurdles that companies have to go through to get on the EPA's radar screen, make it unaffordable. So in many ways, you know, what's, hap what's happening is the, the, uh, you know, the current EPA system, I think, is a deterrent. I think it hinders new product development because it prevents everyone. I mean, even big companies get to where they can't even afford it. You know, it's just not, it, it's not worth it to, you know, develop a new technology because all the hurdles and all the costs and so on and so forth. I think what a lot of people also don't realize is that, you know, you can go to, uh, you know, if you're a hunter, you can go buy firearms, you can go buy ammunition, we can buy paint, we can buy building products, we can buy cars, we can buy pretty much anything, any product that we want. Uh, when you buy antimicrobials, what happens is the government taxes the manufacturer of that product to sell it in every state. Every state has a specific tax that you have to pay hmm. in order just to, to sell the product. And those taxes just, you know, to be in all 50 states can be fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a year, you know, per product. So Is it a percentage it or it, a, a percentage uh, you know, on what you sell? The next, the next issue that you have with it is then the government controls your labeling. They tell you what you can say. They tell you what you can't say. And, you know, you have someone who's never done a mold remediation project, someone who's never cleaned an air handling system, tell you how to use your product in circumstances and situations that they don't understand. So hmm. it can be a pretty frustrating situation. Well, we've been... We've been talking about this research to practice for years now, and we've had like people like Dr. Richard Corsi from down at the University of Texas join us. Some of his Ph.D. students have joined us. We've had people like uh, Dr. Stevens up at uh, Illinois there, and we've had um, Jeff Siegel from University of Toronto. And these guys do, and Ralph Moon in the restoration side of things, you know, they do some very um, interesting research, and Ralph, I, I would put in the category of one that does some research that's really research to practice kind of stuff. I mean, he right. he does. Right. Um, I, I think I'm glad I I'm thinking through this a little bit because he's one of the guys I would say has done some really important research to practice type work. But I've I've been a little disappointed that we haven't had more buy-in from the other researchers out there in academia. At least you know talking to us a little bit more about what it is practitioners need research on. I'll give you a great example. Um, we've been for, I've been dealing with lead, asbestos, mold, other contaminants for 
I don't know, over 30 years now, since uh, right around 30 years, 87, I started doing asbestos. We still don't know how good HEPA vacuums work when it comes to that type of work. We know what a HEPA filter does, but we really don't have a good idea of how well different HEPA vacuums work, and we really don't know very well how to test them. And uh, people have tried to put together test protocols, and it's very difficult to do, but that's a that's an important fundamental question. All these documents recommend HEPA vacuuming and use of HEPA-equipped air filtration devices, etc. And yet we really don't know how well they work. That's, that's very frustrating to me. And I, I wish some of the research people out there would jump on this stuff and say, hey, you know, we really need a better idea of how to measure how effective this equipment is being. Just one small example. Well, Joe, you know, to pick up on exactly what, what, what you said, I agree with you. And, you know, on the fire damage restoration side, uh, you know, certainly HEPA vacuums, other types of vacuums, uh, you know, have been utilized there for years. And, you know, to me, as a user of this type of equipment, someone that's, you know, been in, you know, been in the field on you know, thousands of, uh, of occasions and, you know, had to, to deal with it, you know, it's not even the vacuum. It seems to me the most important thing is what comes in contact with the contaminant, you know, the actual tool, the head you know, that comes into contact with it. And in, on the fire restoration side of things, and even in some situations, the fungal contamination side of things, when you can see the residue, you know, when you can see that the uh, the surface is black because it has a lot of loose soot residue on it. You can see when that surface is green or white because it has, you know, extensive fungal colonization. It kind of looks like a pool table. And you try different techniques on it. You can kind of see what works, and you can kind of see what doesn't. And, you know, one of the big challenges that we have is people just can't see it, you know. And I think that was one of the challenges that, you know, Larson and I fought with this on-location, uh, you, you know, drying where they were, you know, drying things in place or doing top-down drying. You couldn't really see where the air went. You really couldn't see where the air didn't go until you put smoke in there. And when you put smoke in there, it becomes, uh, it becomes visible. So I think it's very important that practical people, and I think the people that are, that, that are hands-on doing this work, practical people they need to see uh visual results and i think that you can't you know if you're looking at a lab report you got so many colonies of this or so many cfus of that and you know it's just numbers and i think sometimes it's it's confusing it's not and, that it's it's numbers three or four or five days after you're done <laughs> right and uh, you know what ha what happens is i think in many situations we don't understand it, and people just, you know, they kind of nod and agreement, and it kind of is what it is, and, uh, you know, I, I think the fact of, of visually seeing it and, you know, and, and doing mold remediation and doing fire restoration, you know, that white glove inspection was pretty important. You know, you can either see it or you can't, and, you know, if, if you're getting something on that white glove or the black glove, depending on what you were using, you know, to look for dust or, or look for residue, you know, that would tell us that, you know, we need to do, uh, you know, more additional cleaning. But I think you know, these are situations where people say use HEPA vacuums because it's the most efficient, uh, you know, it's a more efficient uh, method than a you know, normal filter would be. And, you know, rather than actually being able to see the results, it, it, you know, it, it's, this seems to me like information that's kind of directed more from uh, a scientist or more from a researcher than from a practical standpoint. The person in the field is visual, you know, if he can see the difference, he knows what's working, he knows what doesn't work. Let me give you two things that I thought of when you mentioned it. Number one, the Green Book, the AIHA Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold. 
did exactly what you're saying. They, they really emphasized and focused on the practical ways of determining if something was clean. They, they had the white glove, black glove in there. Then they had just a, a vacuum collection of dust in an area, and then you weighed that essentially to determine how clean you got the area. The problem I find is that nobody's using that document the way it was, the way I, I had hoped it would be used out in the field. Um, I guess you know it wasn't it wasn't accepted uh, or it wasn't I don't know I, I don't know what happened there Cliff I really don't now the second thing that you made me think of is is visualizing and seeing things and I think that can be a little bit of a lead into uh, the other topic we wanted to talk about today which is the research we've been doing at the Healthy Building Summit and um, we included use of a, a a new technology called Instascope where you can immediately and we also have particle counters running throughout the whole project so you could get immediate feedback on how things were going and how how things were working during that process so i think you bring up a good point but before we go into that one more thing you you got me thinking here i love this what about i don't even know if we know what type of you know when you said with a hepa vacuum before we even get to the vacuum part, what about the part that's touching the contaminant? Do we have any idea what the best attachment is to use in these different scenarios for actually collecting what's on that surface as opposed to just spreading it around? I don't know if that research has been done. I don't know if that question has been answered, but it's something that came to my mind when you started talking about that. I think that's an important question. And then it goes to what I heard in a. Uh, I want to. I want to relay this to to listeners. I, I joined in on a uh, microbiology. It was a sewage microbiology and sewage remediation webinar by M Lab P and K. And Harriet Burge was the uh, instructor. And it was just last week, uh, actually earlier earlier this week. And Harriet's wonderful. She's she's a tremendous you know tremendous researcher and and a microbiology expert and a PhD and she's working at a lab and one of the few people I know that works at a lab that doesn't promote sampling um, at least not you know repetitively promoting sampling she kind of downplays the role of sampling but one of the things she mentioned was that when you uh, say power wash or when you foam or when you apply certain products during sewage remediation you're going to aerosolize the microorganisms that could be a health problem for the people doing the work. And I, I texted in a question at that point and said, no, I'm not sure. Is there any research that shows that that's actually the case? And, and particularly when it comes to foaming, because I, I, I mean, I, you and I both know, and we both have worked with foam. I feel like foaming actually lowers people's exposure at least overall, once the foam has been applied, it helps to keep that particulate, whatever it is that you're trying to remove, in a solution, essentially, that won't become airborne because you're, you're applying that foam on it. But she was saying that we should not be using foaming because it aerosolizes, but then she couldn't come up with a, uh, a study that showed that to be the case. It was more like intuitive. That's a simple thing that really I think we should all be looking at more carefully. What are these guys, what's the best way to apply the product so that they don't have the type of exposure we're trying to avoid? Are you familiar with any yeah. research? Well, I, I, think, I, I think there's certain things that I believe are common sense and there are certain things that aren't. You know, Joe, you and I travel a lot. Uh, we've been in a lot of high-rise hotels. And they have these toilets that have the compressor in, in the toilet because it's a low gallonage, uh, you know, commode and, and, you know, it has to be very, very efficient. And, you know, if you've ever flushed one of those things, those, <laughs> you want to talk about aerosolization of sewage and so on and so forth. I think you definitely should be closing the lid before you flush it. And that's a situation where I believe that you're aerosolizing it. I'm not so sure that Harriet, that I would agree with Harriet, that when you're using foam, you're really aerosolizing it. You know, it would seem to me that more, uh, you, that if you want to aerosolize it, we're going to go in 
to that room with our leaf blowers, you know, where we're trying to stir it up. And it would seem to me that a leaf blower or something like that, that just blowing air is going to stir it way up more than something that's putting out shaving cream or even misting. You know, I, I know, I remember a good friend of ours, Mike O'Reilly, who, who passed away. And, uh, you know, he was, he was a big fan of utilizing misting for mold remediation. And he learned it from asbestos and it worked well in the asbestos uh, you know, in, in doing asbestos removal. And I think what happens is there, I think we know that water worked, amended water, water worked. It, you know, it would seem that there should be some study material which would transfer over uh, you know, into this. I do want to go back and touch on something that you talked about as far as the tools go. But I can't remember in my lifetime, and I'm 66, a new tool that came out for use with a vacuum cleaner, you know, with a canister-type vacuum cleaner. The same tools have been standard in that equipment for many, many, many years. And I don't know that anyone studied it. You know, to us, it, you know, when we were dealing with soot, when we were dealing with uh, mold, I always liked to use uh, a head on the vacuum that had a soft brush attachment. And I found that by having that soft brush, I had some slight agitation. And also, I wasn't making an airtight seal on the surface. And what happens with a lot of the vacuum motors, when you make an airtight seal, no air is passing through. And it's that airflow that actually transports the particulate from one place to another. So you don't necessarily want to block it. And I mean, I can tell you, I've seen the standard tools that they've used for, uh, you know, either removing water from a floor, from a floor, and that's what it was designed for. It wasn't designed to remove mold from carpet, for instance. And you know, we've just been using the standard tools, and I think that, uh, yeah, there's been a lot done with the tools on the carpet cleaning side of it uh, for wet cleaning, but I don't think anyone's really given much consideration to the dry side. You know, I'm getting more and more ideas for how to proceed as we continue our research to practice at the at the Healthy Building Summit here. I think uh, these are very important points that we're bringing up that's uh, been a part of this uh, discussion so far today. Uh, great point about the airflow and how it moves the contaminants, Cliff. So very well done. Let's stop and thank our sponsors here at halftime. And we'll be back with the second half. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the research we've done and the results we got. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. All right, we're back for the second half of today's discussion on research to practice. And uh, what I'd like to do here, Cliff, uh, first, do you have any final comments on the first half of the discussion before we get into our own uh, research to practice project? Um, I, I just probably think just, just a couple of things, Joe. I, I, I think that, um, you know, when it comes to workers, you know, today we have many people that, that are immigrants uh, that, that have come to this country. Uh, they're doing restoration work. They're doing construction work. 
And, you know, for many of these people, English is not their first language. So I think that we need simple, direct information that's easily understandable. And I think we need to minimal, minimal, uh, minimalize the, uh, you know, the complication to, to make it simple. And I think that, uh, you know, simplicity is, is better whenever we have the opportunity uh, to, to, to use it. Uh, I think that there, in our industry, there's too much error and misinformation that finds its way into industry guidance documents. Uh, this information gets parroted and, and trained uh, to our employees. Uh, you know, the big concern to me is that we continue to reward bad, you know, what we call bad science and these studies that are really marketing and, and they're not science. And we have these people that act in their own self-interest. And, you know, they're never account held accountable or held responsible for the misinformation that they, uh, you know, that they disseminate. Um, I, I also think that oftentimes our industry operates within an echo chamber, and they have very little input, you know, from the outside. And it's the same people over and over again, and, and they work within this enclosed space, and they they tend to. Uh, you know, drown out any views that don't agree with them. Um, I think that our industry cyclical, that those of us that have been around a long time, the, the restoration people that have gray, the gray hair that are in their 60s approaching retirement, I mean, they've seen many of the techniques and many of the procedures that are being sold as new uh, come back again. You know, chlorine dioxide, you know, has, has been used in the rest. I mean, it was used when I first started in the restoration industry. You know, pretty much the same as, as ozone. Uh, you know, contents restoration and uh, specialty in it uh, was done that, you know, when I came into restoration in the early 70s, that's the way, you know, that's the way that it was done. Um, and, you know, finally, people will eventually realize the correct approach is to use the lowest technology that gets the job done, not the highest. And that came from Burt Rutan, the uh, aeronautical uh, engineer. Great stuff, Cliff. All right, let's 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 talk a little bit about what we did at, uh, at the conference, the Healthy Building Summit. I see Eric Shapiro's on here, too, and I, I wanted to shout out to Eric and thank him for his help. He's been helping for years on the uh, – research we've done up there and also this past year he brought the instascope along which which does some particle recognition it's a particle counter but it also is able to look at the biofluorescence on those particles and and give you a instantaneous breakdown of what particles would be fungal in origin what would be bacteria in origin and what would be other biological load it's been very interesting to work with that and i can already think of a few ideas for this year um eric and uh you know we're gonna definitely i want to look at that that whole idea of what what attachment works best you know at the at the surface when you're trying to clean something and i think the instascope and particle counters in general are a good way of trying to get that instant feedback so that's something we may want to add but in the past what we've done is we've um, taken hotel rooms and we've taken you know hotel rooms on the same floor of the same hotel these are all pretty much identical rooms and we've set them up using different engineering controls so in one room we had a control room where we and this was just added actually i think two years ago we've been doing this for three or four years now uh, for the first couple of years, we didn't have a control room, so I made my own, you know, one of my own pet peeves. I made that mistake early on, but, um, you know, since the last couple of years, we've had a control room. Then we had a room that was just negatively pressurized, so we had an air filtration device of 500 cubic foot per minute. Uh, it was a dry ease air filtration device that we particle counted prior to starting the, the, the research. And we exhausted that out. These rooms had balconies, so we put plywood in the balcony door, opened the balcony door, put plywood in, exhausted one room to the outside, and made it negatively pressurized. We covered up the 
registers and the grills on the mechanical system shut the mechanical system off. So very similar to the way people commonly set up a mold remediation project, an asbestos abatement project, a lead abatement project. Uh, people that are doing allergen removal do this. Um, HVAC cleaning uses similar concepts. Then we had another room where we had both a negative air machine and a scrubber. So two 500 CFM air filtration devices, one creating a negative pressure, one scrubbing the air. And then we had another room where we just had a scrubber. So we had a control room, negative pressure, negative pressure and scrubbing, just scrubbing. And last year we added a fifth room where we had a positive pressure room where we took an air filtration device. In this case, it was put on the balcony because we couldn't put it out in the hallway and disturb the other guests in the hotel. And we forced HEPA, uh, HEPA cleaned air into the room, and then we tested all these different IAQ parameters. So we had the people taking the mold remediation courses set up these five rooms. Prior to starting the engineering controls, we had people that were taking indoor environmentalist training measure a bunch of different parameters. And one of the most important parameters, of course, was the particle counts. And I want to thank our sponsor, uh, Particles Plus. They actually had Tom Grillo come down with five separate particle counters that were all recently uh, calibrated, and they were, you know, zeroed in with each other, and we put one in each room and ran them throughout this process. Then we also had the Instascope do a particle count and a biological count prior to two hours after the setup of the engineering controls, and then at the end of the engineering controls running, which was about a 12-hour period, and then uh, we shut them down for another eight hours, and we did the final sampling. We also took samples of other IAQ parameters like temperature, relative humidity, total VOCs by uh, photoionization detector. We did... Um, Let's see, uh, CO, CO2, um, and those were all measurements done using another sponsor's equipment, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions and IAQ Training, the sponsor of the Healthy Building Summit along with Indoor uh, IAQ Radio. Of course, we, we paid for the rooms and um, we got our, our sponsors to help with the equipment, but uh, we also had another group, U.S. Micro Solutions and San Air, two of them actually, help us with spore trap sampling before, during, and after the setup of these engineering controls. So I want to kind of set the scene. You know, you got five different rooms set up in different ways, and we did parameter, we did IAQ testing in each of those rooms prior to the setup, uh, prior to starting the air filtration devices, two hours after, and then we shut the equipment down about eight hours prior to the final sampling we did, which was around 24 hours later. Anything I left out, Cliff? Anything that I could better describe? No, I think you. I think you captured it all. Okay, so what we had is the, the folks coming in and doing the sampling. And by the way, one of the other things that that happened this year that was a little different from previous years, my hands-on guy is Danny Special Forces Hunt. You got to love Danny. He's a uh, a very enthusiastic kind of guy that, uh, you know, he helps teach the mold remediation guys. So he also was going and um, rotating the scrubbers in the rooms where we had the scrubber going and we had the scrubber and the negative air going. So um, what we recommend during remediation projects is rather than just having that scrubber sit in one place the whole time and never move, is just to rotate it, uh, you know, 90 degrees or 45 degrees every couple of hours. That way you, the, the, you use the exhaust of the unit to actually stir up particulate in other parts of the room and then allow that particulate to become airborne. And um, the theory being that eventually it will work its way back to the air filtration device and help to lower the particle counts in the rooms. So this has been the setup for four or five years now, well, three or four years anyway, and um, we've added a little bit every year. And this year we, 
we put together some preliminary results from the different types of uh, evaluations that we did. We did other things too. We did thermal imaging in these rooms. We did, um, there's a water activity meter. We had the Decagon folks on the show. Uh, we did a little bit with their uh, water activity meters in these rooms. Um, trying to think if there were any other, I don't have my notes in front of me, but that's pretty much uh, kind of sets the stage. So we get this all set up. And um, we have the people go back and do these measurements. Like I said, before before measurements were all pretty similar. You know, you know they're the same hotel rooms. We didn't we didn't put any extra particulate in. You know, we we couldn't think of any way to do that in a really consistent way and make sure that we had um, particulate more particulate than you would find in a normal room. By the way, these rooms were carpeted. Um, they had typically two twin beds in them. They had um, a door to the outside, to the balcony, a door into the hallway, and they were all up on about the ninth or 10th floor of this hotel. The hotel's in a cold climate, uh, western Pennsylvania, up on the mountain, because it's at a ski resort. And it's, um, you know, the time of the year this was being done in late October. So we had a good bit of you know, outdoor particulate at that time. It's a time when the leaves are changing and you've got, you know, uh, your, your typical outdoor levels that you find in, in, the, in the fall in western Pennsylvania. All right. So, Cliff, anything, for, anything more I missed on that? Nope. I think right. you got it. So, why do we do this? Well, number one, we did it because we're trying to figure out as we, you know, teach people how to do remediation of different indoor environmental sources, indoor environmental contaminants, we're trying to make sure that, you know, what we're teaching is actually the best way to help reduce the particle load. And oftentimes we're looking at specific particulate, whether it be lead or asbestos. Uh, more often than not today, I'm dealing with mold and mold remediation projects. So we were looking at that. But the same could be true for if it was a, a water damage restoration and you had, um, you're doing your final cleaning and you had bacteria and other microorganisms in there. The whole idea being we're looking at um, particulate that we normally cannot see and that's in the air in these rooms and trying to figure out which method works best, which method reduces the amount of particulate the best and um maybe is it a engineering controls and um we were also trying to figure out in particular for those that do mold remediation what was the best way to get prepared for a post remediation verification which commonly in my opinion unfortunately these days is just somebody taking one sample inside and one sample outside so you've got someone taking a spore trap air sample in the area that the remediation was done one sample outside or maybe they will also do a sample in a non-complaint area so we did three samples we took one outside we took one sample in the remediation area which was the simulated remediation area basically and one in the hallway of uh of the um of the hotel okay um we also had some, you know, really, this also is, is great for discussion during the conference so that we have a lot of, you know, sponsors that were there and also attendees that were there that were able to see what we were doing as we're doing it and then also discuss that after or during the research that's going on while we have our Healthy Building Summit. Part of the Building Summit is a two-and-a-half-day mold disaster restoration um, conference that we have and um, we, we go over building, building science, mold-related issues, disaster restoration issues, indoor environmental quality-related issues. So it was really nice to be able to get everybody, you know, talking about the same topic. So we did the spore traps before, during, and after, the optical particle recognition before, during, and after, and all of those other IAQ parameters before, during, and after because of the uh, assistance of Tom and Particles Plus, we were able to do the particle counts throughout. And very interesting data came from that. We looked at 0 0.3, 0 0.5, 0 0.7, 1, 
one micrometer, two micrometer, and five micrometer particles. So these were six-channel laser particle counters that were left in the room the entire time. And I'm happy to share, share some of this information with people. If you want to email me at joe.hughes at IAQ Training, I can send you my, my uh, presentation I did at the IAQA conference. So we're looking at what works best. I guess my conclusion, based on what we've seen so far, was that air scrubbing and or the negative air with air scrubbing both seem to reduce the particles pretty quickly within about two hours. And then it kind of leveled off after that point. So we got them down to about two hours and then it kind of leveled off. Although in the scrubbing room, when rotating occurred, we did see some further reduction. Um, I also thought it was interesting to look at the comparison between the spore trap analysis, the particle counts, and the instascope analysis. And they were, you know, there, there's obviously differences if you take two spore traps in the same area. But in general, they were fairly consistent across those three different types of sampling, the particle counts, the spore traps, and the instascope measurements all were fairly consistent. I'm, I'm not, I don't have exact statistics on it yet. We're going to have some folks run some statistical analysis on that. But uh, just from my, you know, my layman's perspective, someone who is out there doing this type of work, reviewing projects, looking at things, they seemed fairly consistent. So I guess the big takeaway for me, and the other IAQ parameters, even though they changed a little bit, um, and in, in some cases, it was based on the fact that when you're on negative pressure, you're pulling air in from outside of the work area, obviously, and in this case, from the hallway. And if the relative humidity has changed outside or in the hallway, well, you're going to see that same change in relative humidity in the work area and not as much of a change in the relative humidity in areas where you're just scrubbing as opposed to areas where you're doing both scrubbing and creating a negative pressure. So what we saw was that I still think it's important that we use negative pressure from the beginning of the project until the gross remediation is complete. I, I haven't changed my thoughts on that, and that's because the purpose and intent there is to control the contaminants so they don't get out of our work area and into other parts of the building. So still very important to use the negative pressure early on in the project when you're doing the gross remediation. We did see, however, that the scrubbing alone and last year preliminary, the positive pressure seemed to do a better job of reducing those particle levels once we got past that initial two-hour period and and once we you know once we got that first two hours in they continued to lower and i would i would suggest that people prior to their clearance if they're able to and if they feel comfortable that they've got that work area you know visually clean obviously they've removed all the contamination that's visible um, i feel comfortable more comfortable now switching over to the um scrubbing at that point, and I think you're going to have a little more success with any post-remediation verification if you switch over to the scrubbing at that point. It was even better than both scrubbing and negative air because you're still pulling stuff in from other parts of the building, at least that's what we did showed, um, that, you know, you're still pulling that stuff in when you continue with the negative pressure and the scrubbing. So I was impressed with scrubbing. I mean, for years I've been, you know, an old asbestos guy and we use negative air and we use amended water. And next year I want to do a little something different and, and look at how amended water works with respect to particulate and reduction of particulate in work areas. But overall, I thought that um, the scrubbing worked very well and the positive pressure at least at first glance, and we've got to look at this more, we're going to do it more in the future, this was the first year we included it, that appeared to do even better than the scrubbing when it came to the final particulate reduction toward the end of the project. Cliff? No, I, I think that um, 
you know, the positive pressure is something that we need to, to think about. You know, just so many times, you know, negative pressure just gets parroted and parroted and, and parroted. And people don't think that they're, that, you know, that you can have a neutral pressure situation or that you can have a positive pressure situation. So that um, we just need to, you know, consider what's best for the project. And I think that that's the, the great value of this. Uh, research to practice, uh, you know, that we're doing. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention is part of the reason I started doing this is, you know, we, we follow all the different theories out there. And one is the, the Shoemaker Group, and we're going to have Richie on the show, by the way, two weeks from today, I believe it is. So I want to make sure I got a great lineup over the next month here. We've got Paul Francisco, who's the chair of the ASHRAE 62.2 committee, he'll be on next Friday. The week after that, we've got um, Richie Schum. Oh, I take that back. Next Friday, we've got the Indoor Environmental Science Forum. So the Z-Man and I will be interviewing people from Tampa, Florida. In fact, we've got to play that commercial again, John. I forgot all about that today. Um, Let's do it now. John? It's the second annual Indoor Environmental Science Forum coming to the Doubletree Hotel, Tampa Airport in sunny Tampa, Florida, February 21st through the 24th. Join industry leaders and educators as they share their knowledge and supporting science with you. See the latest equipment and solutions from exhibitors. Network with sponsors and industry insiders. It's two full days of in-depth coverage of water damage, assessment, protocols, mold remediation, solutions, and legal issues. Don't miss this important two-day industry forum, beginning this February 21st with a welcome reception and wrapping up with a live IAQ radio broadcast Friday the 24th, featuring Radio Joe and the Z-Man and their guest John Lapiterre, Richard Alexis, and industry watchdog Pete Consigli. Register now at IndoorEnvironmentalScienceForum.com or call 954-562-6093 for more information. So I got my weeks a little mixed up there. Next week is Paul Francisco, the chairman of the ASHRAE 62.2 committee. Two weeks from today, we'll be doing the Indoor Environmental Science Forum show. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that event and that show. I think uh, Ralph Moon will be speaking down there, who I, we mentioned earlier today. And I'd love to hopefully get him to say a few words on the show if he can. But, of course, it's always great to see Pete Consigli and Eric Shapiro and the whole gang down there and, of course, Richard Alexis. Then the week after that, we've got Richie Shoemaker. And the week after that, I've got another one scheduled, but I don't have it in front of me. Great stuff. But anyway, the the Shoemaker group has been uh, looking very closely at very small particles, okay? And, and one of the theories is that these very small particles that maybe – some of them would contend standard remediation misses, okay? And this is part of the reason we did this this research. I wanted to see, is that true? I know the capture zone on an AFD is only so big, all right? But, you know, that doesn't mean you're not capturing all the particulate or a lot of the particulate in a room, especially if you're in a room the size of, say, a hotel room, and the exhaust is being used properly to stir and mix that air so that, over time, you're capturing a lot of that particulate. And one of the theories they have is that, you know, we're not capturing that particulate, and this is why some of the very sensitive people still react when they go back into homes that have undergone traditional remediation, as they they call it, all right? Now, I didn't see that in my research. The very small particles are more difficult, we were able to lower them, and particularly with the scrubbing and using the rotation, um, and definitely with the positive pressure, but they also went back up very quickly. Of course, those may have been different small particles from outdoors or from wherever, uh, but there was a pretty significant reduction in those 0.3 micrometer particles, 0.5 and 1s definitely a better reduction in the larger ones. So the the 0.7, 1 micrometer, 2 micrometer, 5 micrometer particles, they, they did seem to do a better job with those. And I think that's something we need to look at more carefully. Is there some other thing we can be doing? I know some of the the guys that do the, um, the, the shoemaker protocol and, and work with those folks use a lot of misting. 
that's something we're going to test in the future and, and see if that's actually uh, assisting with removal of these very small particles. Part of the problem is measuring them. I don't know if they're talking about particles that are smaller than the 0.3 micrometer particles. And even at 0.3, as Tom Grillo has told us, we're basically with these laser particle counters, we're getting about 50% of them. We're really not 100% sure how many there are in these work areas. So just a bunch of interesting things happening. I look forward to this year's event, Cliff. I'm, I'm really excited about doing some you know, additional things this year. We'll probably continue along this theme with our research. By the way, this year it's November 2nd through the 4th. I hope to see a lot of our listeners there. It's just a, a tremendous opportunity to get together. And we do have our keynote, uh, Dr. Mark Hernandez, who did a lot of the work on the Instascope and the optical particle character recognition. Also very big with the microbiology of the built environment and the Sloan conferences for the last five years. He's organized those. He'll be our keynote this year. Cliff, we got to wrap it up before we do. Any final thoughts from you? Ah, just back to basics, Joe. I think let's keep it simple and go back to basics and you know, build on a really good foundation. I agree, Cliff. I, I tell you, it's been tremendous. And, and you made me think here today and um, just the thought about and I know Eric uh, was listening. I hope he still is. I want to do a little more, uh, try and figure out of how we can set up a, a research to practice kind of experiment on different types of attachments on the vacuums. And, and are they actually stirring up more of a problem or are they, you know, uh, doing what we think they're doing? I mean, um, a lot of people like the contact vacuuming, the type with the bristles on there. And I, I agree that seems to be, um, a type that does a better job, at least of cleaning surfaces, but I don't know what we've looked at with respect to the air around it. So this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, to our engineer, John, you got to have faith, to our growing group of loyalists. Oh, by the way, I want to mention Luke Gard, who was also instrumental in helping us with this research to practice project. I think I got everybody else, Danny, Special Forces Hunt, Luke Gard, Joe Spurgeon for helping look at some of the, the uh, PowerPoints I put together to discuss this uh, at the IAQA conference and also here today. Uh, of course, Eric Shapiro for his help, the guys at Particles Plus, the Gray Wolf people have all been very helpful. So we, uh, we want to continue the relationships with them. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying we'll be back next week with the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.